Welcome to Sard's Podcast Sardisms. I'm Mariah Young, and today I'm joined with Kevin Monk, Managing Director of Sard. We both love great technology coupled with great customer service. The main aim of Sard is to help improve the NHS, England's public health service. Healthcare and IT are ever-changing, and we are interested in the ways that we can help it evolve with the growing population. In this episode, we sat down with Marcus Ba, who is a locum GP and emergency physician who has a particular interest in health IT. Marcus is big on open source healthcare and has some eye-opening insights into the way that the NHS works. Welcome, Marcus. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. So yeah, I've got a kind of weird health tech informatics Swiss army knife career type thing. I call myself a general hacktitioner. Oh, I like that. <laughs> which I invented. Quite proud of that. Um, but... So I started off, I qualified in medicine in 2000 and I did a whole load of like 10, I did about 10 years of hospital medicine first, anesthesia, ICU and emergency medicine mainly and a bit of other things. And then I got to a point where I thought, I don't know if that's for me forever um, and decided to have a go at general practice and moved down to general practice and really liked it. Um, And I kind of liked the generality of it. Um, I mean, in some ways, general practice still not general enough for me. So I sort of generalized even further. Mm. Um, got interested in the tech side of things um, just because I was sat in front of a GP system. And in hospital, you're always told, oh, yeah, you know, GPs have got these you know, pretty good computer systems. You can do like audits without having to get paper notes out and you can do all this incredible stuff. And it's true, you can do audits and you can do research and things like that without having to get the paper notes out and do manual like research. But um, what I was struck by is how like these systems in GP, um, they're all right, but they don't fly. They do not fly. They don't, you know, the expectations that we have in what was about even 2010, you know, the iPhone had come out. But even aside from that, you know, we were used to pretty good web applications and lots of good stuff that you could do on your computer. And you were faced with this GP system, which was really very basic and just a sort of, you know, it's an administration platform, I guess, which is how they all started. And I got interested in that, joined a few kind of clubs. So the, the primary healthcare specialist group of the British Computer Society, which is a kind of little group of people who are interested in GP systems. And the health informatics group of the Royal College of GPs, um, and I started that as like a kind of a wide-eyed kind of observer in like 2011 or something like that. And now I'm the chair of that group, oh, which wow. has kind of <laughs> ra- randomly happened. It, um, not quite even sure if I should be <laughs> chair of that group, but I am. It was kind of dead man's boots, as it were, at the last minute. And I was like, well, I'll do it if no one else will. So there I am. So it kind of just drifted around, um, not in a nameless way, in that like some, I am interested in things and you know, it sort of drives me to learn things. Along that axis, like when I was in hospital medicine, I was doing emergency medicine, I saw a guy giving an anesthetic. The need just came down to like put someone to sleep because they were... Um, you know, and you can go to ICU. And I'm like, I have to know how that's done. Yeah. So cue me going off for several <laughs> years and becoming an anesthetist and getting in the exams and all that wow. stuff. Wow. And the same thing happened with tech. Like um, when I was in health tech as a kind of GP informatician, which is the word they use for it, which I hate. I hate the word informatics. Um, but I sort of thought, well, it's not really good enough to just stand around pointing at stuff and commenting on it why don't i you know i need to learn how this stuff is put together and so just gradually uh, you know i've always been a bit geeky and a bit sort of computery and i just taught myself to code code academy so i just sat on code academy for like you know i used to put in like two three hours a day and learn to code did python javascript ruby um and you know then i went on a course uh, called doctors on rails which your mate mine ed wallet uh, ran and he sort of like broke the seal on being able to be able to do useful stuff. Like I came away from that weekend being able to write a web application. Wow. And then of course I'm, I'm still even now not someone I would consider like a, a great programmer. Um, there are many, many people who are thousands of times better than me. Um, but it's just something I had to do. I had to learn how, how it all goes together. And I think that does give you a different insight as well. Cause you start to get an idea of like, what is a, what's a 10 minute coding challenge mm. what is totally intractable in you know space time 
<laughs> a problem that cannot be solved. Wow. You know, you get a diff- you get an idea for that kind of difference and that kind of thing. So, um, and now I just do, I have like a portfolio career as they would call it. So just like, which is code for, I have 17 very low paying jobs, which I <laughs> attempt to do simultaneously. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Along the way, I think the way that picked up by the Kevin Monk radar on Twitter was possibly you my... Did. Quite strongly outspoken views on open source. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing. Yeah, it's a it, it's a big thing for me. I, I mean, my introduction to open source was my brother, who's a bit of a hippie, lives in in a shed in Sweden in a very cool way. That's amazing. And uh, he showed me Ubuntu about this is like more than a decade ago, and I was like, "Whoa!" I did not realize that you could get like an entire operating system that comes with all this stuff as well. It's not just a bare bones thing. Like it really at the time, Windows was quite bare bones. You didn't get much with it. And this thing just comes with everything. And then everything it doesn't have, you can just get also free. And yeah, some of it's not as shiny as you're expecting from proprietary software, but then it's all free. And if there's something wrong with it, you can get involved and fix it. And suddenly like that really piqued my interest. And over a period of a few years, sort of got more into that. Then started to think about medicine and open source. And like at, at the time, of course, I'm working with proprietary closed source GP systems and all kinds of other software for, for healthcare. And thinking, hmm, where's the open source stuff that, that's parallel to this, you know? And, and whilst there is some, there are some good projects out there in open source for, you know, like EM, EMRs and EPRs and things like that. None of them really mainstream. Um, so there's, there is some stuff out there, but I started to really think more about actually medicine as an open source science and vocation kind of, and how we might be losing it into the more of proprietary software. So um, built into medicine, when you're trained, you're expected to also train other people. Mm. You know, it's, it's part of the natural um, progression of medicine that you become, you know, at some point you're good enough that you've got knowledge that you can pass on to the next generation. And that's all open source, as it were. We, we're expected to write the stuff down and we're expected to sort of pass it around. And, you know, yes, you have to pay for textbooks and things like that, but there's a very big difference. You're still putting the knowledge out there. The contrary kind of option is really nothing short of alchemy. It's, it's how the, the alchemists used to operate. You know, they worked entirely in secret because they were worried that someone else would use their findings to beat them to the eventual goal, which was, you know, to eternal life and philosopher's stone or whatever they were looking for. But right. no scientific process progress was made uh, during that period, even though when you do look at some of the experiments they were doing, they were doing science, but they just didn't share it because they were terrified someone else would steal it. And once we started openly sharing science and having journals and things like that, the rate of progress has gone exponentially faster. And now we've got things like PubMed, but we still have a problem with journal information being in you know, locked in proprietary journals, but actually there are people working around that both legally and illegally. You know, we've got open publications where you pay to publish, but there's Sci-Hub as well, where you can just have it. You know, that to me is an important political movement. That's something that has to change about science. And we will not get that by a, a consensual approach with the journal publishers. We will have to disrupt them. It sort of struck me as a really strange irony yeah. that scientific papers were one of the original intentions behind the World Wide Web. Yeah. It was built to share scientific knowledge from CERN from the particle accelerator. Yeah. That was its original intent. And the HTML and the markup language and everything that we share on the web was about people sharing scientific knowledge. And the funny thing is, if you try and get a scientific paper now, most likely it's going to be a PDF document and not available on that thing it was built for. Yeah. I'm not an academic and I don't work in the scientific world, but that's that's the impression I get. You're right. That is it is a total irony. You know, that's happened. And I think disruption is the only way to to change that really because the the journals have had a cushy time for a long time and at one point, you know, they were providing value because they were actually the publication platform. They were providing the paper and the distribution. And now we don't need paper and the distribution is the internet. So you're right. It should not need journals and proprietary platforms, but we kind of stuck with it. I have a high hope that actually what will eventually disrupt that will be the technology that's required inside a paper. So at the moment, you know, papers are still very dry prose and I find them really hard to read. I mean, I I would do almost anything to avoid reading a scientific paper and I'm an actual... Mm-hmm. because they're written almost it's like you could have boiled down what they wanted to say into a tweet 
but they decide to pad it out into six pages of PDF and a whole load of diagrams. The diagrams are impenetrable. They persist in sort of exposing you to all the most difficult parts of statistics without really sort of providing what you might call like a syntactic sugar on the surface of that that would make it easier to understand. And yet you could imagine, how does the future of publication look like? Well, it could be, you know, Jupyter Notebooks, which are almost like a web page that allows you to run Python in a web page, but you can share these notebooks and you can run dynamic code uh, in them. You can run statistical code in them. So you could actually mix up small amounts of markdown, which I think is the, you know, how the text is formatted in there with passages of actual showing people the thing. So I think that's one thing that PDF and, and most, most kind of journal article type things are very poor at showing the thing. Um, and it's frustrating. I mean, especially there are actual journals of health informatics, for example, you know, and they'll talk about EPRs and behavior of clinicians in front of an EPR and stuff like that. They will never, ever, ever include a screenshot of the EPR or even better, a short video of the clinician interacting. You know, we've got all these tools that everyone else is using, you know, to do TikToks with. Yeah. And yet <laughs> it's another irony that they're just like obstinately refuse to use them in the areas where they might be useful for like transmitting an idea. Because that is the purpose of all communication, isn't it? It's to transmit an idea from my mind. I have to convey it in some way, get it into somebody else's mind. And it strikes me that just acres of prose is the least effective way of doing that. Whereas we've got so many more effective ways we should be using them. Yeah. I think podcasts are great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> The other thing that I that always surprises me that's missing from sort of scientific papers, not that I spend a lot of time looking at scientific papers, you know, I always consider myself more an engineer than a scientist, but the data, the data that underpins them, there's always a discussion around it and the interpretation of that data. I very rarely see all of the raw data that was used mm. to process it. And yet I assume it exists mm. in some format that would be really appropriate to, to disseminate. Yeah, well, I think, I agree, you know, that you can imagine a, a kind of Jupyter notebook type thing coming with some data and you'd be able to like play with it yourself and, you know, maybe even find out new insights from it. The only limiting factor to that, of course, is that when you get sufficiently rich medical data of any kind, it's very difficult to keep it anonymized. Mm. And in fact, you really can't do that without aggregating it at some level. The date of birth that a person uh, delivered a baby so if I know the date that they delivered their first baby and I know the date that they delivered their second baby, you can probably identify somebody uniquely from those two dates, even more so if you have location. So if you know they delivered one baby in London, another one in Oxford, you now have got really tight data. And of course, if you have access to another data source, like their Facebook feeds of lots of people, they're likely to have shared that life event as well. Mm. So you could, with enough data, actually not just say, I know this person is unique within a data set, but actually work out their identity. Uh, you could reverse engineer their identity, which is why we're so absolutely vociferous about the way in which NHS data is protected, because we know that there are great research insights and lots of planning you can do with data with enough detail in it, all even anonymized, pseudonymized data. Anonymization and pseudonymization just as a concept do not exist when you have got rich data of that, of that kind. We just prevent anybody getting access to the kind of line-by-line -line records because that's I think that's quite mm. dangerous. What I would like yeah. to see is better use of the data we can share because at the moment, you know, if you there is loads of aggregated data, which is when you aggregate the data and, and, and filter out any sort of small numbers and uh, rare conditions, then essentially you've got some really good, useful data, but it's not identifiable. And how do you get that data? Well, you end up getting it in an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, topical. Try to, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I said the E word. Um, it would be rude not to go into Excel this week of all weeks. So important. We will get to Excel. So, yeah, the, the open data, you know, is there, but you have to trawl around to find it. And then when you find it, it's in sort of, formats that don't really help you uh, do anything useful or insightful with it. It tends to be just like, here, have an enormous blob of unintelligible data. And often you need inside knowledge to really understand how that data has been put together and stuff. It's not, we don't have that kind of open data toolkit uh, that, that we would really like to see. We don't have open data APIs, for example, where you can just get the data you actually need. 
rather than you know, what we tend to do is you know, drown someone in the, in the entire data set and let them work out signal and noise, whereas we could give them much more of like declarative interface to it. Like, you know, what would I like to get? What, what information do I want? Not here's all the information, see if you can find what you want. Open data could be done a lot better. And there is still plenty of stuff we could learn from that by using that data better without having to delve into the line by line, you know, row by row identifiable records of individual patients, which is really disclosive and you know, potentially dangerous. Yeah. I didn't realize actually, I hadn't appreciated that you could reverse the identity. You could you could yeah. work out the identity by going backwards through the data isn't something I'd ever really considered. I've been interested in the, the vitamin D thing around around COVID. And there was a paper released that basically suggested that there was certainly correlation with it. Even controlling for comorbidities, essentially, if you were overweight, you had diabetes, etc. But you 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 also had low vitamin D levels. You were more susceptible to it. And the paper had very very strong data suggesting that that was the case. But I couldn't actually get to any of the data. It was all their interpretation of it. And Babak Javid, who's an epidemiologist, I think, or a virologist uh, on Twitter, I was sort of showing him. And uh, he was like, no, that's very interesting. Um, but th this, this result here surprises me. And I, it, it surprises me to the extent where I don't I can't really believe it or, or it requires more examination. I'm thinking, well, the data for this does exist. You know, if he could directly get to person A, and so it wasn't necessarily identifiable, but him as a virologist or epidemiologist could go in and, 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 and look at that data himself and interpret it himself. Yeah, well, that is, you see, that is possible and actually quite topical as well. But this is something that I spend a lot of my working week uh, emailing people about, um, and it's uh, trusted research environments. So what you're talking about is uh, you want somewhere where you could, the data doesn't have to leave, and um, you could just uh, execute a query on that data, right? And you could just give the query to the trusted research environment and they'll do the query and they'll tell you what your results were. Um, so you get to have access to the full level data, but you don't actually get a copy of it. And that's the, the real worry that we have with this data is that the de facto standard for a lot of this research is that big, I'm talking gigabytes of data, of identifiable data being sort of shipped around the system to different research groups on, on trust basis, on the, on the trust basis that, you know, when they finish with it, they'll delete it. Um, and so far, so good. But, you know, as data gets more and more complex and bigger and there are more researchers, sooner or later, there'll be an incident and, you know, a big escape of NHS data, identifiable NHS data or, you know, potentially the re-identifiable stuff would really impact the doctor-patient relationship because it's us that put all that data in there. And it would look like we've labbed, you know, the entire of medicine is founded on confidentiality. And then somehow your data gets into, you know, Google or Palantir or faculty or whatever. So it has these like serious negative impacts. There are trusted research environments which contain the data. And essentially it's like a runtime where you can say, I want to run this query on the data. I don't need access to the data for that. I just have to give you the uh, query and normally in my in my day-to-day -day work i have to actually um not name check open safely because i'm supposed to be completely impartial but actually ben goldacre's stuff that he's been doing at the um evidence-based medicine data labs ebm data labs in oxford he is exactly this so he noticed that whilst there are some trusted research environments out there a lot of them are like somebody's personal research fiefdom and only that research group get to execute their queries on that on that data and he has done some really good work to make to essentially build an open access data um, uh, trusted research environment that's all built out of open source software and not only that the actual queries have to be published on github or in an open git repository so that gives you open 
uh, oversight as well, like auditing of what queries people are doing. So for example, if, if there was some very privacy invasive query or something that was libertary, so, well, the word, um, invasive of your civil liberties, uh, then it would, it would be very obvious what that, that query had been uh, published. So this open safely system um, will pull in the query from the GitHub page and it's just SQL and you run the SQL against the trusted research environment and the output of the query that they've asked for gets sent back to them. Now that output is much less disclosive already because you don't get access to line by line data, you just get access to the results of the query. But even that is reviewed and we ensure that there's suppression of small numbers and you know, rare conditions and things like that. So that what comes out of Open Safely is safe and very, very unlikely to result in, in data breach harm kind of thing. And that model just smashes it out of the park for me. You know, it's, it would solve the problem that you just said, which is, you know, if someone wants to do this vitamin D uh, follow-up study, they'd be able to say, well, we know that someone did query A and I can see their query on GitHub. So I can also build on the work they've already done Rather than having to start my query from scratch, I can actually see what they did and say, look, I want to take that, modify it slightly to do to get a slightly different insight on this vitamin D question and resubmit it back to OpenSafely. And because it's all computable and all done automatically, um, it's really quick as well. So they can do it like in 10 minutes or overnight for massive stuff. Yep. You know, whereas this stuff used to take months and now it takes minutes. That is a step change. And so I'm not normally allowed to be a fanboy of Open Safely, but I can be on here because uh, I do think it's really, really great. And, um, you know, in general, we have to balance that with other trusted research environments, which NHS Digital have their own. Um, but like a lot of these things, they're just not as advanced in the, in the way they've built it. That's why I, do, I did try to steer clear of it, but I'm also interested in it as an engineer and kind of like prodding things and going, why is, is that? Is that interesting? Does that work? I, I think that medicine's knowledge base is too closed. You know, even though I was saying before, that it's open source in a way. It's only open source if you're a doctor in that, like, I still think it's too hard for people to get trustable medical knowledge and to sort of educate themselves in medicine without having to go to medical school. Like, I think there's lots of people who could learn small parts of it. And we're, we're constantly saying that we'd like patients to be more um, generally health uh, literate, as it were. But then we don't mm. really facilitate that. We still um, encourage everybody to, to sort of defer to an external body to check this and check this out and 111 and a, and a, a chatbot. And like and it, it's always outsourcing your, your health checking, as it were, rather mm. than educating people to be able to do a little bit of that themselves. Um, and that's about how we present the data and how, how we present the information. Um, so like if you go to, uh, medical websites, there are two kinds of medical websites, one in appallingly impenetrable language, which is only readable by doctors and the other version, which is very paternalistic often in, in written in simple language for patients. And I don't mean it's paternalistic in the way it's written. Often the language is just written to cope with people's reading ages. It's just that at some point in every single patient guide, it will say, um, okay, we've taken you as far as we can go here. Uh, now go and see your doctor. It's like a bailout. Mm. Um, and right. it, you can understand why, because uh, you could do a lot of harm by not encouraging people to seek medical advice at the right time. But at the same time, we're not bridging the gap between the highly technical version and the, and the kind of patient uh, version way we, we can't we assume we can't teach you anything. Where are the stages in between that? I mean, if you, if you compare it with tech, I was able to teach myself to be um, a, an acceptable, you know, a, good, good enough to be dangerous um, <laughs> kind of developer yeah. um, for free yeah. Yeah, on the internet. Exactly. And I'm still, I'm still learning, just like I'm still learning medicine. We don't have that for medicine. No, no, it's that hybrid. You know, you're a useful, very useful person to me. Um, because you're somebody who sits in the medical world, but you also have an appreciation of of the technical world. And I think the technical world has always been a very open, uh, encouraging, you know, anyone can go on Code Academy and start to learn to code, you know. Um, yeah. And 
I'd I'd kind of like the opposite way around, but I think it it there is a tendency to say stay in your lane, like don't don't get in, don't become an amateur medic. And I'm like, well, I'm just interested and I can't help myself. I can't stop. And you, you do have expert patients. A friend of mine's a GP. She was telling me about the expert patients she gets in these days that come in to her surgery and they they know some detail about their their, their condition yeah and she kind of almost sends them out of the room and is quickly on google like <laughs> what the hell are they talking about you know yeah. because it's, they're just such an expert in their own condition uh i i had my own strange uh setup where i got kidney stones and went to the doctor and most most times with kidney stones it's x right but I had uh, calcium oxalate stones uh-huh. and um, it was funny because I went on Google and I was looking up what, what, what foods have got oxalate in <laughs> and it was basically my daily, <laughs> it was my daily diet. <laughs> so, so I was able to go to the doctor and go, I think this might be the problem is I'm eating <laughs> kale, spinach, you know, every, everything, uh, yeah. uh, seeds, everything that's got oxalate in it. I, th- I think this might be the problem, doctor. And I was talking to a consultant urologist and he, he said, in my head, there is 1% of the population that has this problem that they eat so much spinach that they end up with kidney stones. <laughs> but I've, I've never met one. <laughs> You're the first. Way to go. The first person. I love expert patients. I think you often learn from them. And I think it's, it's really cool to see. And, you know, I, I want to see um, platforms that help both the patient and the doctor in that situation. So like, I think we talked about how the you know, medical knowledge really isn't like democratized enough so that a patient can level up through their medical knowledge. Um, in stages, they have to jump from like the, the patient version to the clinical version with not, no gap. Um, so I think that could be improved. But also you, you alluded to a point where uh, the, the GP friend of yours is like thinking, I don't actually know about as much as the patient mm. knows. What am I going to do? And I think that we need to move, like, move the conversation to a much more mature one in healthcare and say, you know, the, the model of medicine where you learn everything and memorize it at medical school and, you know, you read journals and memorize everything. That is an outmoded model. Sheer, mm. Just because of the sheer volume of medical knowledge that there is to know and the turnover time, you know, the, the half-life of anything you learn is now, you know, it, it used to be, yeah, if you learned it at medical school, the half-life of it was like 20 years, you know, after 20 years, it's half as useful. Now the, the, the fade is so much quicker, like something you learned just this year could be overturned and changed by new knowledge in another two, three years or whatever. So, and, and sometimes faster than that as well. I mean, COVID particularly has been like every month, yeah. the half-life of COVID knowledge is, is changing. So um, we, we need to move to like, and this is, a, this is another tech, tech medicine crossover thought process, like just-in-time knowledge. So, you know, you've heard like just-in-time compilation where, you know, the, the compiler is just compiling the stuff it's going to need so as it needs it. Um, whereas, you know, medical knowledge at the moment is like you compile everything at medical school. Once you've got your binary block, that's you as a doctor forever, you know, kind of thing. Not quite like that. But mm. I like the idea that, you know, we move the conversation to be much more accepting that your GP will know stuff and is they are your guide through through. Uh, your illness um, and through the health healthcare system, but they can't know everything. And so it's completely okay that they might Google stuff or even better, you know, I said about the GP systems do not fly. That's because the GP systems don't help you guide you through medicine as, as a GP, when you're in the middle of a consultation, uh, you want the kind of sat nav of medicine that helps you mm. to navigate inside good quality knowledge resource, something that's going to help you right then and there in front of the patient what you call just-in-time knowledge. So the patient is an expert patient and you're thinking, well, I don't, I, what can I add to this? And they obviously know a lot. But there is some, there's always going to be some context or just the objectivity that you're not the one with the disease. That is an important part of a medical consultation. And combining that with being able to like use your GP system to give you just-in-time knowledge about that rare condition means that you're, or you're, you're like, supercharging the con- the consultation it's like machine assisted human mm. phrase that i use a lot it's my counter attack against the the ai people because i 
I'm not an AI believer, to be honest. Um, and I'm very wary of people who are sort of saying, oh, you can use just AI to, to solve medicine and soon doctors will be obsolete. You know, there's millions of arguments why that's just not true. But why would we need to jump from like a human using their wits and a computer system to AI with nothing in between? Between those two extremes, there is a whole spectrum of machine-assisted human. We give better and better machines to doctors so that they can do a better job. You know, whether that's like just-in-time knowledge in a normal consultation or a tricorder like Star Trek that can see inside the patient and give them more information about what's going on. You know, there's a whole gradation of levels of machine-assisted human that make you better and better at medicine before we have to even get to the point of an AI. And it seems like no one seems to want to talk about the machine-assisted human in between. They want to talk about uh, it's either self-care with IoT devices or it's AI <laughs> or not, and nothing. Mm. Nothing, yeah. Yeah. Do you know, it freaks me out how much we, we have uh, shared ideas about things. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I wrote a blog post about uh, artificial intelligence and and rostering, and we, on our rostering we have this concept of centaur centaur rostering. I don't know if you ever heard of centaur chess, but essentially centaur chess is these chess competitions where the computer and a human chess player play alongside each other, and actually the human uh, and computer can beat both the computer on its own and a human. So. The, the centaur approach to many things is actually a stronger way of doing things than just yeah. anything in isolation. Machine-assisted human, yeah. And the term centaur uh, comes from the idea that you've got the legs of this horse. You know, it's not a particularly smart animal, um, but it's got these big, powerful legs, and it can get you so far, but you need the steering head of a human on top to, to make it go in the right direction. Yeah. And... Uh, when I think about a doctor in a kind of futuristic medical practice, I also think, you know, AI is often a marketing term and overblown, but it's because it's seen as these two opposite ends of, I either have a GP working, doing things traditionally, or I have this AI bot that does, that tries to do the GP's doc, uh, uh, job. And I think, well, actually, no, it's both, both those things. I can imagine a surgery where someone comes in and the AI uh, has seen their blood work. It, it, you know, it knows its liver, their liver function and can say, okay, they've obviously got a problem with their liver here. You know, they've got bilirubin through the roof and, you know, they're yellow, but it takes the doctor to see that, see the results in that AI system and notice the sort of brown paper bag with a bottle of whiskey in in the corner and and be able to put that in context and say actually there's a social problem here there's some social prescribing there's the, they've got problems at home there's you know you know to see to have that system that can that work it out but you go ah yes yes and yeah. i can see the broader context because ai and technology is very bad uh, in the broader context of things. It's why they're not funny. It's why computers aren't funny. It's why data in Star Trek isn't funny. It's, it's why every robot in every film isn't funny is because they can't see the broader context of, of stuff. And, and comedy is about seeing lots of different things yeah. and, and pulling them together in ridiculous ways. And yes, that's what humans do really well is they're, they're broad Bayesian thinkers. They see all of this stuff and, and, and consider it all in separation and bring it back together. So I'm a big fan of yeah, machine assisted human, assisted humans. You know, the 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 doctor with the big horse legs <laughs> <laughs> to propel them forward. I love the I, I love the analogy actually. I've not come across centaur chess, but I do like the idea. It's, it's another like way of assistance, isn't it? We call it the centaur rostering. Sorry, big plug for our rostering system here, but I might as well. Eh? Um, <laughs> It's, the idea is that the AI um, solves the roster for you, but often you're, you've got someone overseeing it who can look and go, actually, I know that person can't do such and such a day because they've yeah. got a surprise birthday party coming up, something that the computer couldn't know. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you've got that adaption. It's the, human, it's the human side of it. I've been quite impressed, actually, by, you know, the stuff that I've learned about rostering and appraisal stuff just by listening to your other podcasts. 
and actually the way in you know, the business that you've had like different people from different parts of your business um and uh like their their insights been quite interesting um i took away the guy who was talking about um uh we are lean and agile oh yeah andy andy brilliant yeah. that really spoke to me because like one of the things that uh i kind of get very exercised about is like why aren't things done better you know if only I could, you know, we need a central, we need somebody to, to do it properly or like an organization or, you know, the, the My Society of Medicine. I've thought of like so many different ways of slicing this up. And he um, made me think in a completely different way because he sort of said, well, hang on, I don't want, he actually said, I don't do consultancy. I would like run screaming from consultancy because that tells me that I'm not doing my job well enough. And like he's inverted it all and teaching the end person who needs to know how to do it um, like how to be lean and agile and design processes that work better. And if they have to keep asking him for consultancy, then he's obviously not done the teaching. Well, if he goes back to them and does more teaching. I thought that's a much more scalable approach than what I'm trying to do with, you know, whatever it is. If we want to upskill all these organizations like Public Health England, for example, to not need to use Excel for internal data transfers, which is what it's always is from one system to another. How do you do that? Well, if you go in as a consultant and fix it for them, when you go away, they're just as um, kind of dependent as they were before. But if you train them up, then you can walk away. And not only that, but as they get better, they'll go and train some other people. And you've created a, a ripple that goes out from, from an, a good idea. And, and I, mm. it, then that started me thinking about... Um, advanced trauma life support which is like feels like a bit of a crashing handbrake turn from what i've just been talking about no, no, I love it. <laughs> this guy in, that started the advanced trauma life support movement uh, actually it all started because he crashed his light aircraft in a field in iowa or somewhere like that middle of nowhere and um uh, i think some of his family members actually died in that accident and the remaining survivors were really badly treated in terms of the medical care they got in a, in a small local hospital because small local hospitals were just not geared up for trauma and they saw like no trauma. Um, and so they didn't really, although they kind of knew what to do, what they didn't have was a framework for thinking about it and some of the debatable decisions just taken away from them. And so this guy just said, right, well, I'm going to come up with a framework. He was a surgeon, which helped, I suppose, came up with a framework for trauma care. And from there, you know, that's how we've got this. You might have even seen like uh, paramedics doing sort of like airway breathing circulation, A, B, C, D, E, uh, assessments of critically ill people. And that whole process really came about from or was popularized, let's say, from the ATLS movement. And we now have advanced pediatric life support. We have advanced life support, advanced cardiac life support, ACLS. All these things stem from the same idea that like, Actually, you could spend a lot of time arguing what are the priorities for any given uh, trauma patient because uh, everyone's different. But actually, in the argument, during the argument process, patient is dying, <laughs> bleeding out in mm. front of you. Um, mm. And so that what this guy did was just said, look, I'm going to come up with a good way and I'm going to write it all down so simply that you can memorize it and you can just do it like out of your spinal cord. It's a, it's a reflex. You don't even need to think about airway, breathing, circulation, how to do all those things, how to fix things that go wrong all the way through. And you've got a stable patient now after you've finished A, B, C, D, E, and they can now have more. That's when your thinking can come in after the first like bit. So I was thinking, if you take the tech parallel of that, like we're, we're now saying to people like, look, you need to build um, better ways of not using Excel. Go figure. And of course, what do they do? They go away and just like arguing over the trauma care, you've got like three experts, you know, thinking, well, no, I would definitely build it in Golang. And then the other person says, no, 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 this is definitely a Neo4j problem and you don't need relational. And whatever, it just shut up, shut up, shut up. What we need is a good way and pick it, mm. pick one and say, we accept that there are thousands of other ways of doing it. But what we're going to tell you is a good way that you can mm. definitely get a success out of this. Um, just like ATLS, like you could argue that some patients need circulation dealing with before airway, right? Um, that's quite common. 
but the, the framework is still airway, breathing, circulation, airway, breathing, circulation, never changes. Um, now, that, that you can debate about what, you know, if that's the right thing to do. And in battlefield at ATLS, they do see first, right? Because that's a special case. The we are lean and agile approach of like, let's teach people something and let's get mm. them to propagate that outwards. Let's make it simple enough that it's not like a, you don't need a, a PhD in it, just like a two-day course. And then let's give them a simple, good way of like, if you need to check, move data from here to here, you, you need to do it via, like, we're going to make some, we're going to take away some of the ambiguous decisions for you or some of the debatables, and we're going to make arbitrary good decisions. Now, other arbitrary good decisions are available, but these ones are the ones you know, you know? And like, you say, right, you use Python, uh, you use a REST API, you document it using Swagger, you, you know, literally, you know, these are the things you must do. Yep. And, and that way you take away all that debate that leads to six months or 12 months of delay or, or delivery failure. And you just say, look, well, this can be done now by a team over five days because you know exactly what you're doing. And the other thing that ACLS does um, is that the anesthetist, the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, the A&E doctor, the nurses, they all do the same course, exactly the same content, and they all get assessed in exactly the same way. Um, and there's a good reason for that. It means that if they went on subtly different courses, like the anesthetist did a special version of ATLS that was more about airway, and the surgeons did something that was more about circulation and uh, abdominal injuries, whatever, then there would still be these arguments about what's the priority now. But because they've all done exactly the same course, everybody's on the same page. And so I thought, right, so if you had that, like this is how to sort this Excel, let's, you know, we have to get rid of Excel interoperability. Um, uh, fudges out of all our public organizations. And it isn't just public health England. It's like, you know, it's, it's every local authority. It's every NHS trust. It's, it's every police service. It's all awesome. How do we get rid of it from all? Well, we send everybody on the same course. The procurement team, the HR team, the developers, the subject matter experts or clinicians or whatever it is that's, you know, if they all knew the same priorities, then when it came to buying the capability to build that thing, you'd go, you, your HR people would go, yeah, I totally see why you need a developer. You can't do this with a business analyst. You need a developer. Uh, and, and, and then you, your, your finance team would go, yeah, okay, well, we, we can see how, uh, you know, this, there's a short-term cost, but of course, we're not going to get fined by the ICO a half a million quid in a three-year time. So, you know, it, the, you can start to get everybody talking the same language. And even though there are still thousands of other ways that you could have dealt with that problem, it's the collective action dilemma. Everybody is trying to work out the best way forward and no one wants to stick their neck out. That is, that's what's actually stopping us solving this. Because we all know that you could get rid of Excel in a you know, very short space mm. of time if everybody had a good way of doing it. But at the moment, Excel is their good way of doing right, it. Right, exactly. And unless you give mm. them a better good way of doing it, they're going to carry on. Yeah, well, actually something that comes out of our shared uh, heritage and our interest in Ruby on Rails is it takes um, that approach to tech, right? It's um, one of the first things it will tell you on that framework. It's a it's a it's a coding framework basically to build web applications, and one of the guiding principles of it is convention over configuration. So DHH, you created that framework, says, you know, if you go into to McDonald's and buy a Big Mac, you know what you're going to get in it. You know the, the core ingredients. You don't go in and say, I'd like one beef pate. I'd like, you know, the bread in the middle and then the gherkin on the top. And then I want uh, 50 sesame seeds <laughs> on top of that. <laughs> yeah. What you do is you go in and you say, I'd like a Big Mac, but I don't like gherkin, so take, take the gherkin out. And that, yeah. so you've got convention the convention over configuration. Yeah, love it. The convention over configuration so that you don't have to go through all of those default thought processes for, for everything. So you know, if you've got a data problem and how do you present data, here's our, as you said, you know, here's our standard set of things. Make sure that you've got an API on it. Make sure it's documented in, in this way. Make sure you store it in a, in a relational database by default. Take away some of those mind-numbing boilerplate 
um, decisions that aren't really that necessary. There are always people who will do it a different way, but uh, that's fine. That That's completely fine. But I think it's like, what is the one simple way that everybody knows? Well, it's Excel and that's why it gets used. So if we go from a new simple way that was better by a couple of orders of magnitude in all the different parameters, you know, security and all that kind of stuff, then they would start using that mm. eventually. Yeah. I love the opinionated framework type of idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of it. We're both quite passionate about getting open source technology introduced into the NHS and just the barriers around that. That's it. I knew that there had been a lot of people talking about open source barriers, and I just decided to completely sidestep that and say, it's not about the barriers. It's about why you must do it. Um, so, for example, you could say the same thing about drug development, like drugs, that if you left it to the pharmaceutical industry, all drugs would be completely prior, proprietary secret molecules and you would not be allowed to know what the formula was. You, it would be a, a brand name and you would buy it from a drug company and you would buy it from them forever, right? But at some point, medicine said, no, you must do it this way. And so I took that approach, that, the approach that, no, we are not going to allow medicine to become subsumed into a proprietary software establishment. Medicine is medicine. You happen to provide software for medicine. It's not the other way around, right? Um, we, we own you and we want to know how you build the software. We want to see that from a safety point of view, from an ethical point of view, from a developing country's access point of view, from a medical knowledge point of view. So I just took the, I'm not even going to go near barriers because um, there are loads of barriers. There's always barriers. You can say there's barriers to, like, I mean, there are barriers to why drugs, um, when, when the, uh, the patent system was, was used to uh, limit the length of time that drugs could be exclusive. That's a, that's a barrier. You know, um, nobody really wanted to have to put in that legislation to force drug companies, but somebody had to do it. And um, I think we're going to have to do the same in software. And mm. um, at some point, it would just be like, if you're making medicine software, it has to be open source. That's the end of the story. The, the slight complication we have in, in, in software is software is not patentable, it's copyrightable. And the laws are very different. Copyright lasts for a lot longer. So whereas patents give you an exclusivity period and when the patent expires, anyone can you know, make your drug, which gives you a nice balance between rewarding drug companies for the uh, R&D expenditure uh, of, building, of developing that drug and then marketing it, doing the research to prove it works or not cynical view uh, and then uh, and, and then at some point everybody can make it, um, um, a similar drug with copyright it lasts till something like depending on the jurisdiction like 70 years after the death of the last living author yeah. and of course if, a, if the author is a corporation and they're people in, in most corporate law then it never dies. And therefore, 70 years after the death is just a moot point. It's basically always going to be proprietary. So we have to find some way of, of making it um, better. And I actually don't think the legislation is the solution here. Um, I think you manage it by only buying software from people who are open source. Mm. Uh, and, and you say, we're not going to. If you won't play the game the way we want it played, you can go off and bankrupt yourself. Um, but I think it's... Uh, it's a slow burn, that particular argument. <laughs> it's going to take a while for me to win that one. Yeah. If there's one thing that our listeners should know, what would that be? Gloves, bizarrely, <laughs> which is that, like, I'm a big fan of Ruby Rogue's podcast, which you might know about, yeah. which is one of, one of my favorite podcasts ever. And they used to do the picks at the end of, like, things that have changed your life that were really cool. And I climbed Scafer Pike and I wore some uh, lovely fingerless woolen gloves and they changed changed my life because I've got Raynaud's syndrome, which means that generally on a cold, wet day, it doesn't have to be that cold, just wet, really, windy, my circulation to my fingers will completely go and my fingers are numb mm -hmm. and somehow numb and painful, even though you'd think numb would mean not painful. They're numb, painful, horrible feeling, and it won't go away until I get somewhere warm. Um, and these gloves were like, wow. So like... Maybe that's my tip for Reynolds sufferers or anyone with cold hands. Yes, I love that this is this is your message to the world. Go fingerless. Fingerless. Play. Play. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like slightly less 
frivolously. Um, I just think um, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, given the COVID situation and how everyone's working, is how you like everyone thinks that they've done really well because they're doing meetings online. And I just think meetings must die. Meetings mm. are the if you're carrying on doing meetings but just doing them remotely, you've achieved nothing at all. Like apart from the tiny like carbon footprint reduction, maybe and maybe save some time, blah blah blah, whatever. But it's the whole thing of meetings that you know, and um, so much of the time is is valueless. So much of the time is is not really productive for any of the people who are there. So much of what is discussed could have been done asynchronously better because again it comes back to the sort of like pros versus being able to show multitude of different media types you know if i if we discussed an item like every agenda item in a meeting could be uh, a thread on a forum and you could start those threads at any time people can contribute to them at any time they don't have to wait for the meeting uh, you might come to a conclusion and say right we've, we've decided what we're going to do about this close the thread decision made you also now have a, 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 a record of everything that everybody said in relation to that issue attributed to them timestamped everything is it's like the best minutes you've ever seen yeah and and it's done and it might not even have needed to get to the meeting so you've just removed something from the meeting agenda so by the time you get to the actual say you decide that you are going to still have a meeting anyway you've pre-discussed everything Everyone's familiar with the details of the issues. Um, the agendas are not just a dead piece of paper. They're a live document that is a list of these you know, active issues. And you can also embed things like I can put screenshots in there and illustrate what I actually mean rather than just droning on in a meeting. Um, you can uh, put video in there. You can put links in there. You can. The other thing is you can link to issues. So having discussed something, decided it, Three years ago, if someone comes along and says, why are we doing it this way? I can go, link, that's the thread of exactly why we decided to do it this way. However, maybe something's changed. Maybe we reopen that. And we're right. managing organizational issues like GitHub issues, right? And now you're in the 20, 21st century. You know, congratulating yourself because you're doing remote meetings is, is um, uh, hilarious. But all meetings must die. That's much Fantastic. I love it. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. Been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. And I'll be back. I'm hoping. Yeah. You will. You will be back. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We only covered the tip of the iceberg and look forward to having Marcus back in future episodes, which would include discussions around APIs being used in healthcare projects that Marcus worked on that didn't go so well, but learned a great deal about, as well as cryptography. We look forward to welcoming Marcus back soon. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk UK or send us a tweet on Twitter at SARJV and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Bye.